Welcome, ladies and gents, to another episode of Optimize Your Body podcast. And I've got an absolutely incredible, I know I say this a lot, I say, I always say I've got an incredible guest, but I actually, like, this is, you know, I'm really honored to have him on, Dr. Philip Ovadia. And just a quick intro on him. So Dr. Philip Ovadia is a board-certified cardiac surgeon and founder of Ovadia Heart Health, and he's performed over 3,000 heart surgeries. His mission is to optimize the public's metabolic health and help people stay off his operating table. As a heart surgeon who used to be morbidly obese himself, Dr. Ovadia has seen firsthand the failures of mainstream diets and medicine. And he's come to realize that what helped him lose over 100 pounds and keep it off, by the way, I'd like to drop that part in because that's the hard part, uh, was the same solution that could have prevented most of the thousands of open heart surgeries he's performed, which is comes back to metabolic health. So, Phil, thanks for coming on. It's an honor to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be here with you, Martin. Uh, really excited to have a, a great conversation with you and help your audience understand how they can improve their health, optimize their health, and ultimately stay off my operating table, which is what it's all about. Fantastic. Yeah, I love that on your on your bio, you've got, you know, don't be my 3100 or, you know, don't be my, uh, my next person on my operating table. I'm trying to avoid yeah. that at all costs. It's, it's prevention over, over, you know, cure essentially, isn't it? Yeah, that's really what it should be about. And unfortunately, you know, the, the, the medical system, you know, the, it, we call it the healthcare system, but it really isn't a healthcare system. It's a sick care system. And, you know, this is true here in the U.S. and it's true worldwide, you know, where, where all of your audience is going to be as well. We have become focused on sick care, on taking care of sick people, and we have really lost the focus on how to prevent people from being sick in the first place. Absolutely. And it's like this in, I guess, all westernized countries now, uh, but America, 50% of my audience are in America, so a lot of them will resonate with this, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of catching up now in Australia. I live in Australia, obviously, and, and the UK as well, but obviously with the healthcare system and the pharmaceuticals industry in, in America, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but if you wouldn't mind just telling us a bit more about yourself, Phil, and I'm curious to know, did you always want to become a heart surgeon? Like, was there an inspiration there or was that just something you kind of ended up just, I wouldn't say you never fall into something like that, right? It doesn't work yeah. like that, but is that something you just kind of ended up doing or was there an inspiration to it? Well, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to go into medicine and I wanted to be a surgeon. Heart surgery really called to me as I went through my education and my training. I found it, you know, the combination of the technical skills necessary to perform heart surgery, but also the physiology, the understanding of the working of the human heart really just called to me. So I, I you know, became passionate about heart surgery early in my surgical career. I went through all the training to become a heart surgeon. And, you know, it's now been 20 plus years that I've been working as a heart surgeon. But for much of that time, I was a very unhealthy heart surgeon. And, you know, that sounds strange. And people will think, how could a heart surgeon not understand health, not be healthy? But, you know, I was a perfect example of it. And quite frankly, I wasn't the only one. I look at my colleagues even today, and many of my physician colleagues are, are very unhealthy. And, you know, I probably fell in the trap of 
following my own advice and not really considering why it wasn't working. You know, I defaulted to the usual excuses. I said, oh, it's because I'm too busy and, you know, because I don't have time to focus on it. And I really didn't think about maybe it's because the advice that I had been taught to give people was bad advice. And it was only when I had my eyes open to that possibility and I started to explore that and I started to change what I was doing. And I realized, you know, I had success. And then I realized that the advice I had been giving for such a long time was wrong. And our understanding of why people were ending up on my operating table was wrong. And so that's what has led me to kind of refocus a little bit. I still work as a heart surgeon, but I'm also actively working to keep as many people as possible from needing heart surgery. Awesome. Awesome. And metabolic health. Now, human metabolism is obviously very, very complex, right? And I always, I'm always talking about, I'm always saying this word with clients because I help, essentially, I'm a coach, online coach, and I help people get in shape, you know, help them with nutrition, training, uh, you know, mindset, everything that it is required really to get not just the transformation with their physique and but mainly to, to change behaviors, as you know yourself, is the most important thing to be able to make permanent changes, not temporary, which is a different animal. But I always talk about metabolism and the importance of getting your metabolism essentially developed or getting your body to burn more calories by itself and all those kind of things. But if you wouldn't mind uh, just explaining metabolic health, that'd be great. Yeah, it really is a concept that most people don't understand. And quite frankly, most physicians don't understand because again, it's not part of our conversation, despite the fact that metabolic health is at the root cause of most of the chronic disease that we face in the society. When you look at the, here in the US, we look at the top 10 causes of death every year, and eight out of the 10 of them are attributable to metabolic health. So when you understand metabolic health, you truly do understand the root cause of most of our problems. So, you know, the simple way that I try to explain metabolic health to people is when we are metabolically healthy, our bodies are using the inputs that we're giving it properly. And the primary input that we give our body is the food that we eat every day. And when we eat, one of three things is supposed to happen with that food. One of three things does happen with that food. Some of it gets turned into energy right away to use to fuel all the activities that are going on, you know, within our bodies, all the cellular activities. Some of it gets broken down and then used to build and rebuild our tissues, another process that's always going on in the human body. And then some of it is supposed to be stored as energy for times when there isn't food available. And what has happened in our modern food environment is that system has gotten hijacked. It's got knocked out of balance. And we end up storing too much energy. We never end up using that stored energy. And that then has a whole host of downstream consequences that lead to these chronic diseases, like heart disease, like diabetes, like many forms of cancer, like Alzheimer's disease, that are just running rampant in society today. And if we're going to undo that problem of chronic illness, we have to look at metabolic health, 
how do we assess it and how do we fix it? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And when it comes to metabolic health and weight loss, for example, obviously you've been on your own experience yourself. And just curious to know, because I know you did mention, I heard you talk about, you know, calorie counting and, you know, calories in versus calories out. I always have this conversation, you know, if it was that simple, everyone would be walking around, you know, with six pack abs, if it was that simple, right? We all know that's, that's not the case. Not that people necessarily want abs, but you see where I'm going with this. So yeah, just because six out, we, as I just said at the start as well, losing weight is one thing, but it's actually keeping the weight off that, you know, six out of seven people, I think research shows fail, you know, they, they lose a significant amount of weight only to gain it back. And I know you've experienced this yourself. So just curious to, to know what methods really work for you to get sustainable weight loss and really transform your metabolic health. Yeah. So it really was paying attention to the types of food that I was eating more so than the amount of food that I was eating. And like you said, I had many of those attempts in the past where I would lose, you know, good amounts of weight, but I would always gain it back and more. And that only changed when I started paying attention to the types of food that I was eating. And that is what allowed me to correct my metabolic health. And that is what allows for sustainable weight loss. Because when your body is functioning properly, and when you're giving your body the proper fuel, the system just works right. And, you know, depending on when you address it, there may be damage that takes longer to get undone, or maybe you can never get undone. But you can always improve from wherever you're starting when we focus on metabolic health. What I, you know, try to get people to understand is that weight loss doesn't necessarily equate to better health. We can lose weight and be getting more unhealthy. And oftentimes we are, and we can be setting ourselves up for worsening future problems by doing certain things that we do to try and just lose weight. But when you focus on metabolic health and when you're, the outcome that you're paying attention to is better metabolic health, that's always going to lead to improvement. Yeah, I so much of that resonated with me then. And what you said there about losing weight not always being a good thing, right? Because when you lose weight, like you said then, right, you gained it back and more. I think that's what happens most of the time is the body almost, it seems the body almost gets better at storing fat, right? Because it only cares about survival. It's like, okay, you're essentially starving me again. Okay, we better store some fat or, or however, however the body works. And yeah, so just in terms of like metabolic health and muscle mass and stuff, I'm, I'm just intrigued to hear about your thoughts on strength. I know you talked about strength training and we know it's really, really important for metabolic health. Also heart health as well. I'd like to ask you first and foremost, in terms of heart health, what would you say? Would you say strength training is, is more effective than cardio or would you say the other way around? I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I would say that strength training is more effective when it comes to your heart health. And again, this ties back to metabolic health. Your heart health cannot be separated from your metabolic health. So what improves one is going to improve the other. And it's pretty clear that, you know, building and maintaining muscle is the key to improving your metabolic health and, and staying metabolically healthy as we age. And we see this data, you know, when we look specifically at heart disease, we know that the number one predictor of recovery and long-term 
success, long-term good outcomes after heart surgery is how well you can preserve muscle mass, essentially. There's a very simple test that we can do before heart surgery that is a very powerful predictor of the outcomes of heart surgery. It's called a grip strength test. You know, it's just using a, a uh, instrument to measure, you know, how strongly you can close your hand, how strongly you can grip. And that is an amazingly powerful predictor of outcomes after heart surgery. So it's just one example of how muscle is so important in maintaining our health. And that's why I always tell people to prioritize building and maintaining muscle as they're thinking about their activities. And would you say that's partly why they now call muscle, it's now known as the longevity organ? Why would you say they call it the longevity organ then? Obviously, the stuff you mentioned there with strength being fundamental as well, right, for longevity? Yeah, exactly. You know, again, we have a whole, we have a whole host of data now showing that the better you can maintain muscle mass as you age, the longer you're going to live, and perhaps more importantly, the better quality of life you're going to have as well. Because, you know, when we think about, you know, what starts to happen to us as we age, and if we're losing muscle, we develop what's called sarcopenia, where we have lack of muscle, you know, that's what sets people up to fall and break bones. That's what, you know, confines people to wheelchairs or, or not allows them to, you know, get out and do the activities that they want to do. And, you know, when you really talk to people, people aren't necessarily looking to live longer. They're looking to live better and stay healthy longer. You know, if you ask most people, would you rather live to 100, but spend the last 20 years of your life in a nursing home and dependent on others to take care of you? Or would you let, rather live till 80 and be healthy up until the day you, you die? Almost everyone's going to pick I'll be healthy until the day I die, even if I live shorter. Now, the good news is it doesn't work that way. You can live longer and live healthier. And the key to doing that is maintaining your metabolic health. And a big part of that is maintaining your muscle. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing. So what would you say to yourself, right? Because I, the old version of Phil, when you were trying to lose weight, because like you say, that can be a problem. People get so fixated with that number on the scale. And I find myself, you know, I, I battle more with certain clients that I take on, but eventually when they see, for example, you know, they feel better, first and foremost, they feel better, they perform better, they notice they're getting stronger, they notice their health is improving. But the reality is people want to improve the way their body looks. That's just most people. And when they start noticing with their clothes, for example, you know, I have so many clients, Phil, where their weight doesn't really change. In fact, I've had some clients where their weight's gone up by about maybe, you know, two to five pounds but they've dropped you know, two dress sizes within three months or something like that, right? Because they've, they've dropped so much body fat. Just curious to know what you would say to the old version of yourself when you were stuck in that rat race of counting calories, losing weight, gaining the back. What would you say to yourself? Yeah, you know, exactly what you just talked about. And it's exactly the conversation I have with patients every day as well. You know, it's not about the number on the scale. And again, you know, we can look at the, the scientific literature on this the medical literature on this, it's pretty clear that weight is a lousy measure of outcomes. You know, it really doesn't correlate well with any of the outcomes that we're interested in. It is about body composition and, you know, how you look, how your clothes fit. Those are the exact metrics that I use with my patients. Waist circumference is 
the one measurement that I have people consistently do at home. And that is one of our five markers of metabolic health. And the reason that it's waist circumference and it's not weight is because the scale can fool you. You know, if you have more muscle mass, you may not, you know, see the weight loss, but that doesn't mean that you're not improving your health, not improving your metabolic health. And, you know, you can be burning fat and replacing it with muscle and you may not see that change on the scale, but exactly like you said, you'll see the change in the way your clothes fit. You'll notice the change in the way you look and you can do something simple like a waist circumference measurement to, to be able to quantify that for the people who need that number to pay attention to. Mm. Yeah. And the waist is where we carry most of the visceral fat, right? If that's how you pronounce it. The, the internal fat around the organs. So I guess you would say that probably if you've got excess, excess fat around that area, around the internal organs, I would assume that's probably one of the worst things, right? For your metabolic health. Yeah, it clearly is, you know, and we see this, the visceral fat in particular on a cellular level, you know, it is its own organ and it, you know, kind of does bad things in our body. It's where insulin resistance really seems to emanate from a lot of the, the hormones that are involved in that process. They're coming from our visceral fat. So visceral fat is a very powerful marker of metabolic health. And you can look at it in a number of different ways. You know, there are different scans and stuff that can help you measure your visceral fat. But again, the waist circumference really reflects what's going on on the inside. And when you're seeing the changes in that, it really informs you about what's happening with your visceral fat levels. And would you say the three big rocks, I always say, you, you straight away went straight into nutrition when I asked you the most important thing. You said food quality, et cetera. Would you say, you know, the way you train, obviously strength training and movement, you know, how much you move in daily and also, you know, sleep, would you say those two are obviously the big rocks as well? And if so, yeah, why, the, why would you say that is for metabolic health? Yeah. So the, those are the three that I always point to first. And then number four on that list becomes stress. But, you know, nutrition is clearly the most important factor here. You know, the old adage about you can't outrun a bad diet, you can't, you know, out-exercise your fork uh, are all very true. And if you're not getting the nutrition part of it right, you know, it is exceedingly difficult to try and overcome that with, you know, the other parts of it. After nutrition, you know, our activity is clearly the next most important factor when it comes to our metabolic health. And one of the things that I try to talk with people about is that doesn't just mean exercise as we traditionally think of it. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean going to the gym. Uh, there are plenty of people who go to the gym for an hour or two hours a day, and then they spend the rest of their day doing nothing, essentially working at a desk and sitting in the car and sitting at their computer and then, you know, going to sleep. And that is going to put you in a lot worse of a shape than someone who's just moving about throughout the day and never sees the inside of a gym. Uh, again, understand that for the vast majority of our existence as human beings, you know, gyms didn't exist. And today we have more gyms than ever certainly here in the US, and I think this is the case worldwide as well, 
and our health is at the worst it's ever been. So the gym isn't necessarily the answer. And that's not saying that gyms are bad or exercise is bad. It's just that, you know, they need to be used in the proper context. And finally, sleep is what brings it all together because sleep is when your body, you know, does the rest and rebuild process. If you're not getting adequate sleep, again, it becomes very difficult to remain metabolically healthy. We tend to make worse food choices when we don't sleep well. We have less energy to, you know, be active throughout our day when we don't sleep well. So there's a number of reasons that sleep is vitally important to this whole process as well. Mm. And speaking of outrunning a bad diet, right? If you wouldn't mind explaining to us, you actually made an interesting point on a recent podcast about, which I haven't heard before in terms of, you know, cardio making you more hungry after you've done it as well, which is a really interesting point, which uh, when I think about it is true. But what would you say strength training versus cardio? I know you said cardio is essentially ineffective for weight loss or sustainable weight loss anyway, because I have this battle a lot with people and they say, oh yeah, but whenever I do cardio, I just get leaner straight away. And then it's like, but you know, what happens after that when you stop doing it or when your metabolism kind of adapts and essentially slows down a bit or whatever, people don't seem to get sustainable results when it comes to fat loss and cardio. It just doesn't happen. So what would you say the difference is and why would you say cardio is essentially ineffective for, uh, for weight loss? Yeah. So uh, again, you know, we, we have the data on this, you know, we have the data from the scientific studies and we have the data just from looking all around us. I mean, like I said earlier, we have more gyms than we ever have had. There are more people doing more cardio than we ever have had, and we're not getting healthier. We're actually getting worse in terms of our health. And it's because of those compensatory mechanisms that you talked about. There are two problems I find with cardio. And again, I always caution this by saying, you know, I'm not telling people not to do cardio. I'm just telling people that cardio maybe shouldn't be your priority. And you should, you certainly shouldn't be thinking that just because you're doing cardio, you can't be paying attention to the other stuff that cardio is going to take care of all of your issues, because clearly that doesn't work. When we do cardio, the body does adapt and it adapts in a couple of different ways. One is it tends to make us more hungry and, you know, we all see it. I mean, almost every gym is certainly here in the U S every gym has a snack bar in it. And, you know, they're usually not serving stuff that I would consider, you know, healthy and supportive of metabolic health. You know, it's usually shakes and bars uh, that are highly processed. And, and we just tend to consume the calories that we will burn off during the cardio session. And then when you actually look at the body's level of energy expenditure throughout the day, what studies have shown is in people that do cardio, the rest of the day, the body will actually lower the amount of energy it's burning to make up for, you know, what was burnt during the period of cardio. So that is why I'm not a big fan of cardio for weight loss. And you can, you can look at building muscle and what it does. And when we have more muscle, that muscle is going to be more metabolically active throughout the day. So even when you're asleep, muscle is going to be more metabolically active. So the more muscle that you build, again, you're going to be burning that excess energy 24 hours a day, as opposed to you do the cardio and you only burn the excess energy while you're doing the cardio. 
Yeah, the way I say it is, so would you say it's almost like your body's automatically burning more calories instead of, you know, manually when you do cardio, you have to do it manually, but then obviously your appetite stimulates more and stuff. But it's almost like your body's automatically burning more calories just to keep that muscle on your body. And the whole, I guess it's the whole pursuit of building muscle as well. Having high protein, you would say, maybe would have like a, a thermic effect on the body as well. Obviously, that's important. You mentioned food quality. Obviously, that's a big thing that comes into it, right? Yeah, I think those are all factors as well. You know, I think the habits, you know, the nutritional habits that are going to support muscle building have some unique benefits in most cases, although, although sometimes, you know, people go about that in, in a way that maybe might not be supportive of metabolic health. But ultimately, if you want to build more muscle, you're going to have to eat more protein. And usually the more protein you're eating, the less of the other stuff that you're eating, and that's going to lead you to better, better metabolic health as well. Mm -hmm. What would you say your staples are then, Phil, right? In terms of, we mentioned stress, sleep, you know, training, nutrition, just to give us an idea of like the, the things that you really focus on, like the non-negotiables, if you like, in your kind of day-to-day -day life, which keep you, because I know, I mean, when it comes to stress, but everything you're doing, you know what I mean? You're a heart surgeon as well. <laughs> How you deal with that kind of stuff, you know, is, is, uh, is really, really fascinating. Yes. So really the nutrition is the non-negotiable for me. You know, I am, my priorities is always to make sure that I'm eating in a metabolically healthy way. And for me, that's a very low carbohydrate, animal-based protein, you know, heavy approach. And, and that's really the foundation. That's the non-negotiable for me. I do my best to get exercise resistance training in, you know, most days, but honestly, sometimes I don't, I do stay very active. You know, that's one of the things about what I do. And I, and, and again, I built the habits in to make sure that I stay active. So right now I'm, I'm at a stand up desk and I'm standing up while doing this podcast. And I spend a lot of time, you know, doing podcasting and other things on the computer. And as much as possible, it's at my stand-up desk because that's getting me a little bit of extra activity. And, you know, around the hospital, I'm always walking around the hospital, you know, and, and even while I'm in surgery, you know, I tend to kind of be the little movement side to side to try not to be standing still too much. But like you said, the sleep sometimes suffers. I mean, I admit it's probably my, my weakest area of this because I'm on a mission and there's a lot of work to do. And sometimes the sleep falls by the wayside. And, you know, the stress, what I tell people around stress is you can't eliminate stress. I mean, we all have stress in our lives, but it's a matter of the mindset and the habits that allow you to deal with the stress. So, you know, surrounding yourself with a good community, friends, family, whatever it is that just helps you to offload that stress. So it's not always sort of burning inside and having those negative effects, which stress does, you know, again, when you look at what stress does to our hormones and stress causes us to, you know, overeat for a lot of people. So if you let that stress build up as a problem, I lead a very busy life. And what most people would say is a very stressful life, but I just don't let it build up inside of me. And so it, it doesn't become a problem for me. Bill, how do you deal? Surely you've had a bit of pushback in the medical community, to say the least, especially being a heart surgeon with right. red meats, all the red meat you eat. And I'm sure you eat eggs, right? Because they're, they're very nutrient dense and all those kind of things. How, how, have you had a lot of pushback? And, and I'm curious to know how you've dealt with that because I eat animal-based as well. And I still have this 
you know, I still have to kind of explain myself a lot to people and stuff because they think I'm going to get, you know, heart disease and stuff. Yeah, no, I do get a lot of pushback, uh, but I just, you know, I, I point to the evidence on all the different levels. You know, we have been focused on a low-fat dietary approach. We have been giving the message that, you know, red meat is bad for us, cholesterol, dietary cholesterol is bad for us for the past 70 years. And during that time, our health has only worsened, and specifically our heart health, the very problem that it's supposed to be solving, has worsened. So I look at that, you know, sort of high level data and I point out this out to people. How can it be that our consumption of red meat, which here in the US has fallen by approximately 40% over the past 70 years, while our incidence of diabetes, obesity, and heart disease have all been rising over the past 70 years? So how can red meat possibly be causing that? It just makes no sense when you think about it in that in that uh, sense. And, you know, I do spend a lot of time debating and explaining and, you know, going through the narrative of cholesterol and why it is a failed explanation for heart disease. It does not explain why we get heart disease. The focus on lowering our cholesterol has not improved our situation around heart disease. And quite frankly, at this point, you know, I get frustrated with my colleagues that they are still so beholden to this idea. And I simply at this point, just point out to them, are you happy with the results that this is producing? Are you happy with the outcomes that your patients are getting with the advice you're giving them? And if you're not, it's time to start changing the way you think. And I recognize how hard that is to do. It was hard for me to unlearn all that I had learned around heart disease and cholesterol. But the evidence is there and I can no longer, you know, just go along with that narrative just because everyone tells me you need to go along with that narrative. That just doesn't work for me as a physician. So I have, you know, I continue to have the conversations and have the discussions and put the evidence that I am aware of out there and, and understand that, you know, it's not that doctors are trying to be ignorant. It's not that doctors are, you know, trying to keep this information from their patients. Doctors truly don't know the information. They don't get presented with the information. Our educational system, our medical educational system, and our healthcare system has been captured. And the narrative, you know, is, is not allowed to be questioned in many circumstances. But we as physicians need to change that because it's not serving our patients. And ultimately, we as physicians need to remember who we are here to serve our patients. I heard you talk about a particular case, Phil, when you said about a certain patient that you were dealing with and you were doing an operation with, and unfortunately you couldn't save them. And then you had to go and break the news to her daughter, I believe, right? To her kids. Yep. And, you know, you did say, was that like, a, I know you probably had a few moments, but I wanted to give you credit first and just like, thank you for just being so courageous and actually just doing what you're doing because, you know, it's uh it's a tough thing to do to go against the narrative, et cetera, and just, you know, stand up and, and you know, have something to uh, 
to, to really have a big impact. But um, yeah, was that like a, a particular moment for you? If you don't mind talking about that real quick in terms of that situation. Yeah, you know, and, and that really was, you know, sort of one of the pivotal moments, you know, it was really what bought this mission into focus for me so well. I had already started on the journey, but that incident where, you know, a 39-year-old woman ended up on my operating table and couldn't be saved and recognizing, you know, what a failure of the medical system that was, how all of the signs that, you know, should have been addressed weren't addressed and allowed her to get to that point that she developed a devastating cardiac problem that was not savable. And that I then had to go, you know, tell her family, tell her children that they were going to grow up without their mother. That was just really the last straw for me. And that was when I said, you know, I need to start getting this message out there. I need to be keeping people off of my operating table because no matter how good I am as a heart surgeon, no matter how good all the heart surgeons out there may be, you are never as good after you had heart surgery as you would have been if you didn't need the heart surgery in the first place. And, you know, quite frankly, that's what I've made my mission is to keep as many people as possible off my operating table, because the vast majority of what I do as a heart surgeon is preventable, and we should be able to keep people from needing heart surgery. And the thing is, Phil, you can know everything you know and all the medical school and all the knowledge you have, but you've had to go through your own process yourself, right, of actually transforming your lifestyle, transforming your relationship with food. And doing it the right way so you can keep the weight off and be metabolically healthy, right? Because when you look at, I'm sure there's plenty of heart surgeons, as you say, a lot of your colleagues may be overweight or, you know, doctors and stuff like that. And it's like, almost like if you haven't actually been through the process yourself and you don't know what it actually takes to be able to be metabolically healthy, it's kind of hard to to communicate that, right? Unless you've lived it. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, there certainly are, you know, many of my colleagues who are focused on metabolic health that maybe haven't gone through the same journey, but it's interesting how many of them have, you know, when I go to the conferences that are focused on metabolic health and I talk to the other practitioners that are there, it is kind of amazing how often you hear the same story that they were just going through their career sort of as normal. And then they had a wake up call around their own health that led them to discover metabolic health and then, you know, led them to start talking to their patients about it. We really do not get taught this stuff in medical school. Now, I am optimistic because I do see younger physicians, you know, medical students today who are recognizing this and and waking up about it and talking about it. And so, you know, I hope that in the future, doctors will be paying attention to this more. And, you know, more and more of my colleagues are waking up to it. As I go to those meetings, I do see more and more physicians from more and more different specialties there. So that is what gives me hope about the future. And ultimately, it is going to be the doctors and the patients partnering to undo the mess we're in. The healthcare system isn't going to fix itself. It really has no reason to. You know, right now, the healthcare system works great for everyone involved, except for the patient and the doctor. Everyone else, 
is doing great in the healthcare system. The pharmaceutical industry is doing great. The, the healthcare administrators are doing great. The food industry, which is adjacent to all this, is doing great. They don't have reason to change the system. So it's going to take the doctors and the patients working together to change the system ultimately. Mm. And, and there's specialists and experts within their field. Why would you say a heart surgeon? If you, someone's going to do heart surgery on you or someone you care about, you want it to be a good heart surgeon. It's pretty simple, right? You don't really care about all the other stuff. And that's what they're experts in, right? But the fact that they're now really going on their own journey and actually, you know, they've been on their own transformation journey, which is then helping them uh, become better and give better advice is awesome. Just, uh, I guess, one more thing I wanted to ask you. And a good thing is uh, I had our friend, Dr. Anthony Chafee on recently, you know, uh, Anthony. Yeah, I had him on recently and he went deep down the rabbit hole of the saturated fat, cholesterol and heart disease. We won't have to go there. He'd be pleased to know. <laughs> we'll have to go too deep. <laughs> but, we let uh, the neurosurgeon handle that stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, as you say, you know, essentially it's getting worse. You know, people are getting fatter and sicker, really, essentially. And, you know, technology is getting better, which is a great thing, but it's, it's also causing people to be, I guess, more sedentary, right? In some ways. What do you think, what are your thoughts about, you know, human health going forward and where, where we're going to go? Yeah, well, I think we really only have one choice at this point because our society is literally collapsing under its own weight. You know, the expense of taking care of sick people, the resources that are being consumed to take care of sick people on all levels, it's simply unsustainable. So our only choice is to start improving our health. You know, we look at the healthcare system, for instance, and we talk about there's a shortage of doctors and there's a shortage of nurses and, you know, there aren't enough hospital beds to go around. And, you know, you can't keep expanding those resources. They're finite. But what we can change is the number of sick people. And that's what we're going to have to change one way or the other. And, you know, like I said, I believe the only way we get ourselves out of this mess is that, you know, the doctors and the patients start coming together and say, okay, we need to make ourselves healthier to relieve the burden of the system. And again, I see that happening more and more. There are more and more people waking up to this. You know, the communities are growing. The, the conversations are making it onto uh, bigger platforms. And I am hopeful that we are going to turn this ship around. But like I said, I'm not waiting for the system to do it for us. I am partnering with my patients. I am partnering with my colleagues who are waking up to these same facts. And together, we are going to make the system respond to the changes that we're implementing. Incredible, incredible stuff. So first of all, your book is Stay Off My Operating Table, right? In the background yep. there? Yeah, yep. yeah, that's, there. yeah, there we go. Awesome. So I just want to, I'm going to put all everything in the show notes anyway, Phil, but just wanted to shout that out there anyway, just, you know, just in case people don't check, but I'm sure a lot of them will. Uh, so go check his book out. And yeah, where else can the, where, where can the audience, audience find you and anything else you want to plug, my man? Go ahead. Yeah, so the best way to find me is uh, iFixHearts. Uh, my website is iFixHearts.com. Uh, on Twitter, which is where I'm most active, is at iFixHearts. You can find me on Instagram as well. And ultimately, I am looking to partner in as many different ways with as many different people as possible. So 
ton of resources, ton of different ways that I work with patients and work with people. We have the book, we have courses, you know, we have all the educational materials. And then here in the US, I do work with people one-on-one through my telemedicine practice. And we also have a coaching program that's actually available worldwide. So be happy to connect with anyone that's looking for help in this area, looking for the resources that they need and just come to ifixhearts.com and, and we'll figure out how we can work together. Fantastic. I'll add ifixhearts.com into the show notes and everything else as well. So thanks a lot for your time today, Phil. Really, really appreciate it. That was, uh, that was an awesome, loads of valuable, really valuable content there for the audience. So thank you very much, my man. Thank you, Martin. Keep up all the great work you're doing. Thank you.